0: You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right, let's open our Bibles this morning where we left off last week in um, the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 4. We've been there a number of weeks now, and last week um, we looked at Daniel 4, as you remember, from a personal perspective, how the chapter warns us about pride and our need to humble ourselves and receive God's mercy. This week, we're going to look at the same passage, but from a cultural perspective, and how the chapter comforts us in chaotic times by revealing God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign over all. But What I thought we would do first this morning, though, is a brief recap, just in case you weren't here last week, or if you were, just to kind of remind you. Um, the, the, The whole series started over in Genesis 10, where we looked at the first kingdom in the world that was founded several years after the flood of Noah by a guy named Nimrod, actually Genesis 11. And its capital city was a city known as Babel where Nimrod led the people to gather together in defiance of God's command to spread out over the earth and to build a huge monument to honor themselves called the Tower of Babel. Many centuries later, that same anti-God, man-exalting spirit manifested in the very same place through the greatest Babylonian king, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar and who is also one of the central figures in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel actually begins with Nebuchadnezzar conquering the kingdom of Judah, southern Israel, as he had many other nations up to that point, um, in which together he ruled over this vast empire that included most of modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, along with parts of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. And he just didn't rule over this area. You've got to see, this was his, this was his real estate portfolio. This, he owned this. He just didn't rule over it. It was his. He was the, one of the greatest monarchs of the ancient world. Now, he conquered Israel by basically going in and destroying the city and then plundering the temple and then um, deporting Israelites to serve as slaves in Babylon. Part of his strategy was to take the, the brightest, the youngest and the brightest, the most promising young men among the Jews, give them Babylonian names, indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture, and then turn around and use them to govern for Babylon in the land they were just conquered in. It was a brilliant strategy. Well, one of those young men was Daniel. Along with three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were, in essence, removed from a very God-centered culture. Jerusalem, the temple, the worship of God, and they were, just in a short matter of time, exported to a very godless place, Babylon. But in spite of that, in spite of that, although they were in Babylon, they never allowed Babylon to get into them. They remained faithful to God, and they... And God actually promoted them in Babylonian society in their government positions. To be sure, it was not easy, and on several occasions, it almost cost them their life. But they never gave in to the pressure of conforming. They did not conform to the world. They remain loyal to God. They remain lights in a very dark culture as we are to be in our culture. Eventually, Babylon fell to the Persians, who fell to the Greeks, who then fell to the Romans, who ruled during the time the New Testament letters were written, including 1 Peter. And at the end of 1 Peter, Peter calls the church in Rome, she who is in Babylon, she being the church, Babylon being Rome. Instead of she who is in Rome, she who is in Babylon. And the reason he did that, what he was saying was the same God-rejecting, man-exalting spirit that originated with Babel and Nimrod, that was manifest in Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, was in very much alive in Rome. And since the fall of Rome, many empires have come and gone, but the spirit of Babylon has remained. And today that spirit wields its influence, not through one single empire in the world, but through many world agencies and global powers all working together to bring humanity again under one government just like the original Babel. And in the Bible, this resurrected effort to bring humanity under one government is presented as a sign of the end of this age prior to the return of Christ, who when He returns, Revelation 18 and 19, will completely decimate Babylon and its spirit. In the meantime, in the meantime, God's people, you and I, we have to learn what Daniel learned and what Daniel did. We have to stay on mission in Babylon. And one of the things we need to to have in order to do that is a confidence in the sovereignty of God. In the confidence of the sovereignty of God ruling over the pride of man. And that's the theme of this passage and what we're going to look at today. Last week, we went through the whole narrative of it, all 37 verses. I'm not going to do that again, but I think it would be good to kind of do just a brief recap. Nebuchadnezzar has his second dream in chapter 4, and it's a dream from God and absolutely terrifies him. So he calls in all the wise men of Babylon once again to try to give them the interpretation they cannot. So finally, he calls in Daniel again. Now, Daniel's about 50 years old now. Originally, in the first dream, he was about 18, so many years have gone by. And Daniel reluctantly gives him the interpretation because he knows this one thing. He knows that it is a message of divine judgment. The dream centered around a huge tree, a fruitful tree that spread over all the earth, that provided food and shelter for all creatures on the earth. And a divine messenger entered the dream, called for the tree to be cut down, the branches trimmed off, the leaves scattered. And the fruit scattered, but the stump and the roots were to remain. And then the messenger also said that the person the tree represented would be reduced to having the mind of an animal and live among the animals for seven times or seven years so that all the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Daniel immediately had the interpretation. And he told Nebuchadnezzar, You are that tree. And that God had exalted him, his empire, God had exalted him, so that his empire rose and provided everything for all those in the earth, so that everything in the earth would be cared for and nourished, everything in his kingdom. But because his heart was lifted up with pride, and he had exceeded the bounds of God, the bounds of his God-granted authority, God was going to cause this great ruler to be cut down, But not die. He would leave the roots. Nebuchadnezzar himself will be given the mind of an animal and eat grass like an ox for seven times until he acknowledged the Most High was sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And then Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to do right, and to show mercy to the oppressed in hopes of adverting this judgment. And although Nebuchadnezzar was dramatically impacted by this dream, he was terrified by it. The plea of the messenger, Daniel, and the severity of the message did not affect him. Ultimately, he presumed upon the patience and the kindness of God, and it did not lead him to repentance And we read in verse 29, 12 months after that dream was given and interpreted, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as those words came off of his lips, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. His mind went from him. He was driven from the palace into the fields and made his home with the wild beasts. His hair became like the feathers of eagles. His nails like the claws on a bird of prey. And we are not told any more than that. There's no information on those seven times or seven years. All we read in the next verse is simply this, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High, And I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples on the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, the angels, and with the peoples of the earth, human beings. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And not only was Nebuchadnezzar's sanity restored, but also was his kingdom, and not only restored, but it became greater than it was before. And so he concludes in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, of course, the the key verse in this whole passage is a statement from the portico of the palace. You know, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power? and for the glory of my name. In essence, I am the Lord over this kingdom. I am the sovereign. I am the most high. It's not ironic then that one of the names that's used for God appears six times in this chapter. Verse 2, 17, 24, 25, 32, and 34. And it is the name of God The most high. Six times in these verses. And when a name of God, especially one that is obscure as that, is used that many times in one chapter, the Holy Spirit is saying something to us. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is the most high. God is saying, nope, 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 nope. Got that wrong. I am the most high. And then goes about demonstrating that. Now, the, 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 the Hebrew word translated from the English most high is the name of God, El Elyon, El Elyon. It's, El is a shortened form of Elohim, which speaks of God's strength, and Elyon is the, like a superlative of El, and it could be translated strongest. And so El Elyon, therefore, is the strongest strong one, the one who has no one above him, or the Most High God. It's used 29 times in scripture, 13 times here in Daniel, six times in this chapter. We can find out a little bit more about what El Elyon means when we go back to its first use in Scripture, which was back in, in, a, in uh, the first part of Genesis, and what talks that deals with Abraham's life and a priest named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said this Blessed be Abram the most, by the God Most High, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And so El Elyon refers Mount to God as Redeemer, or the God who provides, or the God who heals. It refers to the God who created all, possesses all, rules over all, who has no limits, whose authority is supreme everywhere in the created universe. Simply put, El Elyon means a God who is sovereign over all. Now. This attribute of God, and He has many. Love, mercy, kindness, omniscience, omnipresence, righteousness, justice. There are many attributes of God, but it is this one attribute of God that the spirit of Babylon hates the most. Sovereignty. You know what? It goes back all the way to an event that actually preceded the original Babel event. It goes back to Satan's rebellion against God, right? Right? His his rebel words are recorded in Isaiah 14. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like El Elyon, the most high. No, no, he he didn't say, "I'll, I'll be like the most wise God. I'll be like the... All seeing God, El Roe, or I'll be like the all sufficient God, El Shaddai. Not, he doesn't say I'll be like the redeeming God, the saving God, the healing God, the providing God. He says, I will be like the Most High. He was not interested in any of the other attributes of God. He only wanted to be like God. He wanted the sovereign rule. In other words, I'm going to usurp the place of God and rule in his place. And this was the reason behind his rebellion and the reason behind all similar rebellions against the one true God. It's the spirit of Babylon, headed up by Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, who is also 2 Corinthians 4, known as the God of this world, satan who along with his organization of fallen sons of god work together to overthrow god and this is why paul says in ephesians 6 for our struggle speaking you and I, is not against what we see flesh and blood but it's against rulers against authorities against powers of this dark world against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, the realm above us. That's why Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. That's where he operates from. Satan's not in hell. He's above. That's where the system is. That's where the hierarchy is. And those forces of evil work through human institutions. They, They work through powerful people. They work through national rulers to carry out the original agenda of the leader behind them who said, I will be like El Elion." You know, the entire behind-the-scenes history of humanity, not what you see, but behind what you see, that history can be understood through this lens. God raises up a nation by blessing it. That nation rebels against His sovereignty. God judges that nation to bring them to repentance and salvation, as He did in the case of Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. And the way that God did that with Nebuchadnezzar was not arbitrary. You know God does not do things in an arbitrary way. Everything is specifically done a certain way. I mean, God just didn't, you know, get together with the other Heavenly sons of God, the angels, and say, Now let's see, how should we punish this guy? Let's get out the list. Let's see how we're going to judge this Nebuchadnezzar. Ah, that's it. Let's turn him into an animal. It's not arbitrary. There's a reason. Everything God does is for a reason, including the way He judged Nebuchadnezzar. He was saying something through it. So when God caused Nebuchadnezzar to be lowered from the pinnacle of power and pride to the depths of becoming like an animal, God was saying, That's the result when men take the glory that belongs to me and take it for themselves. They become lower than I created them to be. Psalm 8 says, What is man? You are mindful of him. For you made him a little lower than the angels. So in the creative order of God, you have the creator, and then you have the first level of creation, the angels, the heavenly sons of God then right below that you have human beings and then way 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 below that you have the animal kingdom so instead of being a little lower than the highest of God's creation angels when man takes glory for himself instead of giving it to God he becomes more like the lowest of God's creation he becomes more like that he moves that direction now that's not only true Individually. And we looked at that last week and we looked at how that can happen in, our, in people's lives. But it's also true for a nation. It's also true for a nation, according to Romans 1, that teaches just this. When a nation rejects, not God's love, not God's provision, not any other attribute. When a nation rejects God's sovereignty, when a nation rejects El Elyon, When a nation rejects what is clearly revealed in God's creation, God judges that nation in order to bring them back around to sanity, to spiritual sanity, to, re- to repentance. And he does this not through an active judgment, fire and brimstone, but through a passive judgment. And that passive judgment in Romans is, is relayed to us in a phrase, God gave them over. Three times that's used in this passage. God gave them over over. What does that mean? It means this, is that God says, all right, mercifully I have inhibited you from receiving the full outcome of your sinfulness. I've kept that from you. In other words, I haven't let you reap what you've sowed. I've cut out part of the reaping in my mercy. But you have not returned to me, and you keep rebelling against me, so I'm going to pull that mercy up and let you experience the full outcome of your sinfulness. It's a passive judgment. It's a turning over, and it happens in three stages. And the design, the design of course, is, is that when God turns us over to the full outcome of our sin, is that when we experience the destruction and the pain that comes from that, we're going, we've missed it. We need to go back to God. It's like a doorbell that rings. Hello. Turn to Him. Repent. That's the whole design. So ultimately, it's because God loves us because he wants us restored to him. And if we won't listen to him with our ears, we'll listen to him another way. Now, this turning over happens in three stages. The first stage involves sexual impurity. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So God didn't judge people with this right? He allowed people to pursue what they wanted to. Instead of stopping it, he just let it go. Okay, experience the outcome of that. The question is, though, is why? Why, 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 when God um, judges a people, when people reject the Most High, God in turn judges them through a passive judgment by allowing them to experience the outcome of their sin. Why is it sexual sin. Why not some other kind of sin? There's, there's three turning overs here and they all have to do with that. Why? Why does that happen? Well because this. Sexual sin above anything else is the most personal manifestation of pride. That's why. The root of sexual sin is not sexual drive. It's pride. Let me say that again. The root of all sexual sin is not sexual drive. It's pride. Pride says, I will not present my body to the Lord. I will control it myself. Romans 12 says, Therefore, in light of the gospel, present your bodies to God. Your body is important to God. But what pride does, it says, I'm sovereign over my own body. I'm sovereign, and I'll determine what's right for my body through my own sinful impulses instead of God's loving and protective commands. I will take the place of the Most High to free myself from the Most High, and I'm going to form my own kingdom. And in my kingdom, lust isn't wrong. It's just biological. In my kingdom, one night stands. That's the standard In my kingdom, premarital sex is a given. Pornography is healthy, and prostitution is necessary. See, so the first place national pride manifests is in sexual impurity. And that is what our country went through in the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. God let us have it. He gave us over to it. And even though, even though... He sent two revivals during that very same period to wake us up. There was two revivals. The first one was the Jesus Movement among young people all over the United States. College campuses all over. Started in California, spread across the whole nation. Then there was another movement called the Charismatic Movement where God poured out His Spirit among dead denominational churches. Two, two revivals, but there was no the outcome of that was no significant repentance. The nation continued to go on its way. And so then came the second stage, turning over to sexual perversion. Verse 26 because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And it's likely the defining moment of this second giving over, it's my opinion. Was a 2015 landmark decision, Oberfeld versus Hodges, when the Supreme Court said the same-sex couples have the right to marry. And the nation celebrated. And the White House was lit up with pride lights, and there was no repentance. So then came the third stage, verse 28. God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, a depraved mind literally means a mind that cannot function. That's what the word means. It means a mind that cannot think morally anymore. And it's notably revealed, verse 30 says, by inventing new ways of doing evil. New ways of sinning. And secondly, by approving, promoting, and celebrating those new ways of doing evil in other people. Not just enough for me, I want other people to join me in it." All three stages of moral corruption is what happens when Babylon invades a culture and people reject the Most High. What's unexpected though in this is that moral decay, in this moral decay is, that, is that the depraved mind is, is last instead of first. You would think, first of all, a downward turn in society begins with sinful thinking and then it works its way onto sinful activity, but it does not. The depraved mind is is last because it is a mind that is not only not ashamed of its immorality, it's a mind that not only considers its immorality good and virtuous, but it's a mind that demands that its immorality be approved and celebrated by everybody in society. And this is what the whole LBGT movement is all about. Not every homosexual but the movement itself, it's not about cultural tolerance, folks, or acceptance of alternate lifestyles or sexual preferences. is about cultural approval and celebration of those things. And that's why the powers that be are working so hard to expose every child in public school to LBGT indoctrination, which has resulted in 50% of all Gen Zers now believe the lie that there are more than two genders, 50%, 51 actually. And nearly 5% reject their own God-given heterosexuality of which the world calls being non-binary. In other words, they go, I'm not male or female, 5%. That's a 4,000% increase in two years. It was 0. .0001%, now it's 5%. That's a 4,000% increase in two years, why, why? And listen, when you question this, when you question Babylon, maybe you wear a t-shirt that says there's only two genders, you get arrested for hate speech. Happens. That's why when you have a Facebook that favors two genders, and you're getting chemo from a hospital, they stop the chemo and tell you you'll no longer be served at this hospital. Happened. This is happening all the time. That's why when your bank, you get a letter in the mail, your bank account's been closed. You have the wrong opinion. We will no longer be your bank all the time. You're punished for not bowing and celebrating Babylon's golden statue. And that's why also, lastly, there's been such a push among what I call formerly Christian denominations for homosexual marriage and homosexual clergy. Because as long as biblical Christianity exists, the total cultural approval of all things LBGT will never be accomplished because biblical Christianity is very clear on this. There's two sides to the coin. You've got to know them both. The first side, 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's any sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Second part, you got to know this. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. So what is Paul saying here? The Christian answer to all of this sexual chaos is not inclusion. It's not exclusion. It's transformation through the power of the gospel. It's by the blood of Jesus. Now, if Romans 1... If Romans 1 is the word of God, and it's trustworthy, which it is, then what we're witnessing in our day is the passive judgment of God upon our national pride, not unlike God's judgment of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Everything that's going wrong today finds its source in one thing. It can all go down to one thing. The rejection of God's sovereignty. We do not want the most high over us. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So how do we live in a time like that? What do we do? What is our strategy that we learn from Daniel and from the New Testament? Well, the great commandment is a good place to start. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What does that mean in terms of this, what it means don't give in to the demands of Babylon to acquiesce to, approve, or celebrate sin. Don't do it. Here's what God's will is He says it really plainly It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Love. Love the Lord God with all your heart. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second half of the the great commandment. What does that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means living with a faith and a hope that no matter how far away from God people are, They can change. They can change. They can be transformed if they truly encountered the God who loved them so much that at infinite expense to himself sent his son to die for their sins, our sins on the cross. You live with that. You live with that faith and hope. There's plenty. Because God is a miracle-working God. And that's what happened to you. You think, well, maybe I just kind of a little smarter than anybody else, and I saw the truth of the gospel, and I decided to believe. Oh, come on, give me a break. See, no, no, God, God intervened into your life. You weren't asking for it at all. You were just going about your worldly, normal way. Maybe even going to church and sitting on a pew, but it was just you know to mix, score a couple points on the weekend. But all of a sudden, he became real to you. You heard the gospel. You heard about Christ. You began considering that. And he began working in your heart and turned your heart towards him. And you saw his holiness and your sinfulness and your need to repent and his loving offer of forgiveness through the sacrifice of his son. And you said, count me in. I believe in that. See that's a miracle people and that miracle can happen to anyone i mean if god can save nebuchadnezzar i mean if he can if he can take down that ego he can save anybody amen see so loving your neighbor it means having living with that with that faith and hope that no matter how far away From God, that people are, He can change their lives. That's the power of the gospel. And don't be ashamed of it, Romans 1 says. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation. Don't be ashamed of it. Share it, minister it. But you know what loving your neighbor also means? It means graciously. If you love your neighbor, you want what's best for them. You want what God wants for them if you love your neighbor, right? So loving your neighbor also means graciously advocating for the glory of God's good design among our neighbor, or among our culture, that means. In other words, don't bury your head in the sand while the whole culture just continues to rot. Develop Christ-centered resolve to uphold what God upholds, to uphold the sanctity of unborn life, to uphold the sanctity of childhood that's being attacked to uphold the sanctity of male-female gender, to uphold the sanctity of a man-woman marriage, to do that. Like Daniel, we got to live out our lives in, the, in an environment that's very hostile to that, and I've, in an environment that's very hostile to the Most High God. And yet, and yet, listen, those very circumstances that Daniel lived in were the platform for him to speak to the powers of the day. That's what God used to affect Babylon was somebody who wouldn't back down. God used that, and he wants to use us. Man, that's what Matthew, and that's the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Don't put your light under a bushel. Stop that. You're corporately a city on a hill. What's a city on a hill for? So a a traveler at night can see where he's going so he can find his way to the light. That's, That's us. That's you and me. So be the light of God in a dark culture. You know, earlier we read about Satan, formerly known as Lucifer. What about Satan? His, his sin was taking God's glory for himself. But you know, before all that, he did just the opposite. Do you know that Satan did just the opposite before he rebelled against God? Ezekiel 28 describes him standing on the holy mount of God, directing the worship of all creation to God. Right, and then receiving from God God's will for all creation. He was a reflector uh, of God's light. His name was Lucifer, which means just that, light bearer. And he, he was not the light. He reflected the light of God to creation and pointed creation to the glory of God. That was his job. That was his job. Look up. Look up. Look at the glory of God. The Bible says, uh, Ephesians 5, that you were once darkness, but now you've been made light in the Lord. Live as children of light, Ephesians 5.8. And that's our role. Our role is to direct people to the light. We don't take the glory for ourselves in anything, but rather all that we do, all that we say, we do it in a way where we say, to God alone be the glory. And it is not I, but Christ that worketh in me. To God be the glory. Lastly, realize, and this is a, the kind of back circling back to the theme, how do we live right now? You have to have a real firm conviction that God is sovereign. You have to really know and believe the sovereignty of God, that he is your El, Elyon, right? And the reason, and I think this is the reason Daniel could really thrive, in Babylon. How he could stay loyal to God and yet work and, and, and prosper in Babylon. And you see it in his prayer, this, this, this understanding that he has about God. Right after he, um, he receives the content of Nebuchadnezzar's first dream and the interpretation, instead of running to tell the dream, he, he has a time of worship and prayer. And in that in that time of prayer, he says this in Daniel 220, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. Now notice this. He changes times and seasons, he deposes kings, and he raises up others. Now, and you see that all the way through the book of Daniel. One king comes, another goes, another one comes. He's saying behind all of that is the providential will of God ordering these things. But he also says here, he he changes times and seasons. And and that's not talking about winter, spring, summer, or fall. All you got to do is call. (laughs) It's not talking about the seasons. It's talking... (laughs) (laughs) I wish I never would have said that when I watched this. (laughs) Some things slip out. You know what I'm talking about. It's taught, the seasons here that talking about spiritual seasons, and one way that spiritual seasons change is when God turns a nation over to its own sin to bring about repentance, changes the season from dark to light. You know what? Another way God changes seasons? He, he sends revivals. He sends revivals to change the, the, the spiritual season, if we will. And I, I think this way too, because I believe Romans 1 clearly says, we are under the passive judgment of God. I just don't think there's any argument against it. I also believe, though, that if God sent two revivals during the first sexual revolution, He can send a revival during the second revolution. He can do it. And we need to pray for God to be merciful to our nation. To show mercy to us and to bring about transformation, but look at, regardless of what happens, it's, it's he's sovereign over it. He's the Most High. He's El Elyon. And Nebuchadnezzar came to understand it. You know, he says, "His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He is the king of every other king. He is sovereign over all." See, so here you got this heathen Babylonian king, and he comes to to understand. What sophisticated 21st century governments, world rulers, globalists, and billionaires refuse to accept that the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God of history, the God of redemption, El Young, the strongest strong one, the possessor of heaven and earth, the most high God cannot be overcome, and that nothing or no one can resist his will. They don't understand that, but we do and understanding what I just said should provide you with a bit of confidence as you look to the future. Your confidence is in what? We serve a sovereign God who in all things is working out His will according to His purpose, Ephesians 1. We don't understand that. We may not understand why and how and what. We don't have to. We just know who He is. We've seen it in history. We've seen it in the Bible. Just the fulfilled prophecies of Daniel should give us great, great confidence. I mean, 150 years before any, any of it started, God was speaking of it through the prophet Daniel. After Babylon came the Persian Empire. That was 100 and some years later. And then came after that the, uh, the Greek Empire. And after that came the, the Roman Empire. Daniel says all that years and years and years before it happens. Why? He's the God of history. He knows. He's sovereign over all. We should take confidence in that. In our future, we know that our future is secure in Him. But not only our future, we, we also should have um, a sense of security about our present. I know a lot of people right now. It's shaky, and people feel the shakiness, and they don't have fear hope for the future. Get your eyes on a sovereign God. Get your eyes on get your eyes on El Elion We we should have a sense of security even about our presence. Why? Because, well, we serve the Most High God. And that's what the psalmist said in that great psalm, Psalm 91. He says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the what? Will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He's my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And just like God said to the exiles, those Jewish exiles in Babylon who are away from their home in Israel, he says to us exiles who are away from our ultimate home in heaven, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? Why? I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And He is our Savior. He is our Savior. Colossians 1 says this about our Savior. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. That's Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, or in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then He says this. For by Him, by Jesus, all things, say all things, were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible invisible whether thrones dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and and he is before or above all and in him all things consist so what's paul saying here jesus is the creator and sustainer, and owner, and above all things. And therefore, Jesus is what? Our El Elyon. He is our Most High God. And here's the thing that's so amazing about Him. Is although He is, and always has been, the Most High, at a certain point in human history, He descended to become the Most Low. By becoming a man and humbling himself to death on a cross. He deserved, he deserved all the glory, but what did he do? He took all our shame so that we could know the glory of God's forgiveness, love, and grace. And it's only through him. He is the way. And that's exactly what he said in the Gospel of John. I am the way. He said this, and no one goes to the Father God except through me. That's it. That's the only way. You don't get there to God, to a relationship with God, to forgiveness, to peace with God, to the hope of heaven, to heaven itself through your own efforts, through your own goodness, through your own resolve, through your own morality. only get there one way, through a humility that says, I've sinned against God, but he's given me a great savior in Jesus Christ, and I believe in him, that he died on the cross for my sin, that he rose again, so I could be forever and completely and unquestionably forgiven, forever and ever and ever, and become his child and receive an inheritance in heaven and given power and grace and mercy and goodness and peace and joy in this life there's a lot of things right now that can take away that peace and joy there's one source that can give an eternal supply Jesus Christ have you believed if you have not not are you going to church not are you a good person Not, I have fond thoughts about God. Not, I believe there is a God. But have you believed in Jesus Christ? If you have not, I urge you. From a human perspective. But I also think from a divine perspective. God says, come home to me, please. I did all this for you. Please, come to me, all of you who are weary heavy-laden, and I will give you eternal spiritual rest. That's what Jesus said. Let's bow our heads this morning. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Let's pray this together out loud. Dear God, I believe in Jesus Christ that He died on the cross for my sins, and that He rose again Make me right with you. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. I've turned from my old way and I'm headed your way. You are my most high in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. Let's all stand. I'd like to have our prayer team come up if you need prayer for anything this morning or if you'd like to find out more about that prayer you just prayed, we'll be up here in the front to talk with you. Everyone else, if you can hang out for some fellowship, great. If not, safe travels. See you next week.